0: After the Christmas holidays, I returned to High Wycombe. One of the first things I learned, was that Taylor, my opponent in the fight in November, was dead. His home had been demolished, by a bomb, and all his family had been killed during one of the raids, on London, that occurred during the festive season. Today, such news would have a traumatic effect on many people. In those days, it was accepted as a fact of life and quickly put at the back of, if not out of, one's mind. Taylor, like countless thousands of others in the war, died. Most of these, like Taylor, did nothing to warrant their early departure from this earth but, due to the regularity of the occurrence, people became inured to the distress of losing loved ones, relatives and friends. Perhaps, it was just as well. Life would have been much harder for us, if we had all mourned the deaths of those close to us as overtly and piously as some might think right. In early 1941, and with a great fanfare, we were told of an American plan to build freighters. These ships would be called Liberty Ships and would help alleviate the critical shortage, of ships, caused by enemy action. Some months after this, I recall photographs and or newsreel film of these ships being launched. The novelty was in the fact they were launched sideways, instead of stern first as was the usual and traditional practice. Another, almost unbelievable, fact quoted was the length of time required to build one of these ships. I forget what it was, but instead of a few months, even years, these ships were going to be built in days. To enable this to be achieved, the various parts were to be prefabricated, at various industrial plants, and, then, assembled at the shipyard. Nothing like it had been done, previously. There were many doubters, especially among those in shipbuilding fraternities. However, by and large, this program was both successful and productive. One of the American shipbuilding yards had a name not unlike the spelling, Kaiser, of the name of the German leader of the First World War. I'm not sure, it wasn't spelled the same way. I do know, I thought it very strange, at the time. It would seem that, even in wartime, a child's mind grasps irrelevant points and makes them noteworthy. Unhappily, although the Liberty ships proved useful, they were unpopular. Whether this unpopularity was deserved, or was purely an expression of anti-Americanism, I don't know. I do know, that a few were reported to have split their holes in the rough swell and high seas of the Atlantic Ocean. This breaking apart was claimed, by some, to be caused by welded, as opposed to riveted, plating. Riveting, which many claimed allowed the ship's plates to give, was considered to be essential, by many at the time. The rivet versus weld argument was protracted and I remember many authorities espousing their views in the later years of the war. The fact remains, many Liberty ships led useful lives and served a great need during the war. Some of these ships survived, to lead long useful lives, long after the war finished. As I have mentioned, the British army advanced against the Italians, in North Africa. We were all overjoyed to be cheering victories, at last. The media, probably, made too much of the situation. A population, hungry for any success, was ready to accept one without questioning it too deeply. After a few stirring weeks, it all came to naught. A few things combined to bring about a serious reversal. First, not for the first time, Italy bit of more than she could chew. This time, by invading Greece. The Greeks, Then, started to embarrass the Italians. Germany sent troops to help the Italians, and Britain sent troops, from North Africa, to Greece to help their endangered forces. This aid to Greece seriously depleted the strength of the British army in North Africa and wasn't common knowledge at the time in Britain. Second, the German high command detailed General Rommel to take command of the Africa Corps and fight in North Africa. Ostensibly, the Germans were sent to aid the Italians. We were to discover that, due to the Italians' reluctance to fight, the German Africa Corps virtually took over the North African theater of war. With the depleted forces at his command, General Wavell was unable to continue beyond El Egele, after an advance of over 400 miles. We didn't know that the halt was going to be permanent, or that it would be a long time before British forces again reached that point. Most of us were confident that the advance would continue, after a period of build-up. During this time, the newspapers were full of maps and diagrams showing the fighting area. This was a much-practiced method of imparting information of battles and of general strategic positions, arrows would show advances and attacks, boxes marked the various forces and everything would be done to bring the battle into the home. I found that when things were going well, we couldn't get enough of these ubiquitous maps and diagrams. When, however, things went into reverse, as at this stage of the war they did on a regular basis, the maps and diagrams were not so evident. For the first time in the war, huge numbers of prisoners of war were being captured, along with their equipment. Both on the North African and East African fronts, the Italians were surrendering in large numbers. Like the loss of Luftwaffe aircraft, over Britain, the prisoners of war tended to be a yardstick of success by which we civilians measured things. Not that we were discouraged from so doing, by the media. The figures, of prisoners taken, went into tens of thousands. Ten Italian divisions were destroyed, in their rapid retreat from Egypt. Everyone in Britain was overjoyed. We didn't know Rommel was going to avenge the Italian losses, in spite of Italian assistance. Although the fighting had virtually ceased at El Gala in Libya, the Italian troops were still suffering serious setbacks in East Africa. Here, Commonwealth troops, mainly Indian, were continually throwing them back. In a sick way, it was uplifting for us, in Britain, to think Italy had a worse record of success than Britain at this juncture, and the Italians had been the aggressor. Without German help, it is unlikely Italy would have survived 1941. No one, in Britain, had any respect for the Italians as a fighting force. My recollection is that a general feeling existed that, in the matter of warfare, the Italians were less successful than we had been, or were being. This valid comparison and the self-depreciating humor, helped many citizens morale immeasurably. We civilians, generally, didn't hate the Italians. We didn't really dislike them, although I'm certain, that the men fighting them had a natural, Vehement animosity. The civilian population, generally, was quite happy to feel that the Italian people, as a whole, were unwilling dupes in Mussolini's grandiose ambitions. The Germans, on the other hand, were beginning to be detested, by this stage, as individuals and as a race. To make matters worse, no one could say they weren't a substantial, successful, strong, even sinister, force. At this stage of the war, we civilians were still unsure as to whether we should be pessimistic or optimistic. Over things, generally. Nevertheless, apprehension wasn't far below the surface of our most private thoughts. On the home front, as it was called, the Luftwaffe was still bombing British towns and cities. Many of these raids were of great ferocity. During this period, RAF Bomber Command had still been raiding German targets, on a regular basis. At this stage of the war, there was enough good news, or, perhaps, news that wasn't definitely bad, to keep us from delving too deeply into matters that might not be progressing so favorably. Many naval battles also took place, mainly in the Mediterranean, with a number being very successful for the Royal Navy. Some reverses occurred and a few British ships were lost or seriously damaged, but the enemy lost many more ships. Word filtered down of serious damage to HMS Illustrious, an important aircraft carrier. However, she was patched up and sent to America for repair. Illustrious sheltered, first, in Malta, an historic British naval base. This tiny island was involved in its own battle for survival, at this point. The reports, concerning the constant air attacks on Malta, were front-page news, daily, in our newspapers. Malta, whose air defenses were totally inadequate, was attacked countless times by large formations of German and Italian aircraft. In the earliest days, only a few antiquated aircraft were available, to counter these endless, heavy attacks. I remember, the names bestowed upon three Gloucester Gladiator biplanes. These ancient, indeed obsolete, machines had, the names of faith, hope and charity. In the beginning these three aircraft, found by accident still in crates aboard an aircraft carrier, were the only planes available to thwart the combined might of the German-Italian, known as the Axis, Air Forces. The British pilots fought gallantly, but the enemy planes bombed, almost, at will. I recall reading, at the time, that casualties would have been much higher, except that the island was honeycombed with deep caves. These made admirable air raid shelters, and in them, the citizens found sanctuary. Not unlike the London citizens and their underground stations. However, in Malta, living conditions and the lack of proper nourishment resulted in various health problems. Malta was a vital British base. It was the only friendly port, between Gibraltar and Alexandria, in Egypt. Unfortunately, it lay not 60 miles from Sicily, where the Axis powers had, both, considerable naval and air forces. The nearest British base was over 1,000 miles away. This was well beyond the range of any fighter aircraft of the day. This meant there wasn't the option of flying aircraft in to help in the defense of the island. Any plane sent had to be either shipped in crates or flown off aircraft carriers. Every effort was made, in extremely hostile circumstances, to supply Malta. Suicidal convoys were organized and sent. Although, often, only a handful of ships survived, some relief was possible. The remnants, of many such convoys, limped into Valletta Harbour, in the early days. The loss of ships, men and material was great. A solitary difference, between these convoys and the similarly perilous Arctic convoys, later in the war, was that survival time in the warm Mediterranean Sea was far, far longer, eventually, when sufficient air cover could be supplied to help protect the ships, the convoys were increased. Then, with the Axis blockade lifted, partially, It was found possible to unload significant quantities of the essential supplies required by the starving, disease ridden, and suffering island. Modern fighter aircraft were also delivered by being flown off aircraft carriers. However, the price the relieving convoys paid was very high indeed. The island was first bombed by the Italians in June of 1940. Air raids continued with various degrees of strength and frequency until 1942. From January until July 1942, there was only one period of 24 hours during which no raid occurred. Hashed during some periods, the bombing was almost continuous. There were constant tales of heroism, emanating from the various battles involving Malta or the Malta convoys. The tribulations of Malta's inhabitants were as bad, or worse, than most, some say any. That the island was awarded the George Cross, for bravery, was more than a symbolic gesture. It was an honor that most people in Britain fully agreed with, fully knowing, many from personal experience the ordeal the Maltese people had survived. Perhaps it is pertinent to explain, here, that aircraft had an advantage over ships, at this stage of the war in particular. Before the Americans, almost, perfected the utilization of aircraft carriers, in their Pacific campaigns, anti-aircraft weaponry and ships, was rudimentary, at best. The number of aircraft the Axis powers could amass, over huge areas of the Mediterranean Sea, made it very hazardous for shipping of any kind. The risk, to large naval ships, was great. Aircraft carriers could not carry sufficient aircraft to adequately protect themselves and other ships if they were attacked by even a quarter of the planes the Axis could send to attack them. This is why submarines, fast monolaying ships, and destroyers were used to land some supplies. Even then, the last and most hazardous part of the journey was traveled at night. Prodigious efforts were made to get vital supplies to the inhabitants and the defenders. The film, San Dimitrio, London, depicted an epic battle to bring a crippled oil tanker into Valletta Harbour. Based on fact, it is fair representation of the problems that existed at the time, it is as well to remember some of these facts, when considering the struggle to relieve Malta. In March 1941, round about my birthday, I recall reading a small paragraph in a newspaper about Bob Crompton. Crompton had played for, and captained, Blackburn Rovers. This, as I have probably mentioned, was the football team I supported. Crompton's playing career spanned two decades, from the early years of the century until World War I. He played 576 times for Rovers and was the club captain of two championship sides. He also captained England, for which team he played 41 times. Later, he managed Blackburn and, in particular, the promotion-winning side of 1938 ninths. He was a giant in the football world and one of my idols, although I never saw the man. His death made an impression upon me that few other entertainment notables have. One, who comes to mind, being Tommy Handley. The comedian died, most unexpectedly, not long after the war ended. This man's death, because of his tremendous influence on our morale, during the darkest days of the war, was a national tragedy. For a while, stalemate occurred in North Africa, but we still hoped for the continuation of the advance. Hope was put on the back burner when we were informed that Rommel had been busy building up the Africa Corps. Comments started to be published, and mentioned on the wireless, That the Africa Corps could be considered a very real threat. We didn't know it, but we were being softened up by the propaganda people for bad news from the North African front. The East African campaign, meanwhile, was still going quite well. Although we were to learn, later, how important it was strategically, this was a very minor campaign, to us at home. Even though it was considered a small campaign, by the public, the Italians were still retreating. This, we grabbed hold of, to cheer ourselves. The media, too, in the absence of any positive news from North Africa, served up a constant diet of the more agreeable news and information from East Africa. However, apart from the continuing bombing of German targets, by the RAF, there was little enough good news at this period. Then, late in the spring of 1941, we received some heartening news. It concerned Royal Naval bombardments, of various coastal ports and harbors in North Africa. The object, of these attacks, was to hamper Rommel's buildup and to destroy his supplies and supply facilities. Our navy, in addition, sank or damaged a number of enemy ships, mainly Italian. The RAF was, also, active in the area and they bombed Rommel's supply lines and his coastal facilities. This activity and the reported buildup of our own forces, in North Africa, made us think that things were better than they were. No one was really prepared, for the news that was about to come from this theater of war. Most of us, I know, were confident of the British advance continuing, eventually. Sometime, in the spring of 1941 and while I was home one weekend, I learned that my stepfather had changed regiments. There had been mention of the fact, in the press, that many cavalry regiments were being split up. My mother told me that her husband wasn't pleased, about the change. He was a keen and, apparently, an accomplished horseman, who took a great interest in his various horses. None of this counted, of course. Jack was now a sergeant in the Westminster Dragoons, an armored regiment. I remember thinking, it was a sign of the times that tanks were replacing horses. My mother had a photograph of Jack in his new black beret. I made a mental note to obtain a cap badge for my collection. Although I asked, on a few occasions, I never did get a badge. Jack never adjusted, properly, to being a dad. By the time the war was over, I had outgrown the real need for a father and, during the war, he was too preoccupied. Being only a boy, of course, I felt very keenly the lack of fatherly attention. Mainly, this deficiency was felt, when other boys talked of their dads or of things they had shared. Now, I can appreciate his preoccupation, more. At the time, while I could appreciate that he was otherwise engaged, I felt it didn't excuse his complete lack of acknowledgement of my existence. I didn't expect, too much of his time. This was because, through no fault of his own, I knew he had no parenting or fatherly skills to impart. He had run away from his own home, to join the army, as a boy of 16. Nevertheless, a letter, or, even, a note dash from him, or some query about my activities, would have been nice. As far as I could make out, he didn't even acknowledge my being. At the time, rightly or wrongly, I felt very slighted and overlooked. The feeling was made worse by the fact that I had felt better as a fatherless boy. Although I felt perfectly fine as a child of a single mother, I had entertained high hopes of some sort of improvement. When I first heard about having a new father, it wasn't to be, ever. In March 1941, the Luftwaffe air raids on London were particularly heavy. Other towns and cities were also attacked, with Merseyside, Bristol, Glasgow, and Plymouth being the most severely damaged, after London. I recall a couple of bad raids during the Easter holidays that year. Finally, came the news everyone in the capital was waiting for. We were informed that the night defences, particularly around London, had been strengthened. At first, people were a little hesitant to believe this, due to the fact excuses, explanations and apologies, had all been made, in the past. However, when the BBC News reported 90 Luftwaffe planes had been shot down during one night's activities, it did appear to confirm this assertion by the government. After such a lengthy wait for adequate protection, in the form of more guns, it was ironical that these guns would not be much used, after May, at least, for an appreciable length of time. This was because, there was an extended lull in the bombing of London. It was at this time, my visits home became regular. No longer was it a hit or miss decision. I was home every weekend, and, for all the holidays, until I returned home, permanently, in early 1943. These arrangements made life much more pleasant for me, even though there would be some sleepless nights as a result, but, that was in the future. It was in the spring of 1941, the new Halifax bomber was unveiled. This aircraft was a powerful, four-engine, machine. Up to this point, the lion's share of the RAF bombing had been carried out by the two-engine Wellington. Youngsters, across the land, knew all there was to know about the Wellington. When we drew planes, which we frequently did, chiefly we depicted three, the Spitfire, the Hurricane and the Wellington. Now, we had a new, larger and more powerful, plane to learn about. Learn about it we did, until we knew all there was to know. It didn't take long, for the small boys grapevine to spread the word that the Halifax bomber was a vast improvement over the much maligned, two-engine Manchester bomber. This aircraft was a dog, in the expert opinion of most schoolboys. Strangely, acknowledged experts were found to agree, later, with the schoolboys, or, should that be the other way round? Aircraft recognition books, which at the time were de rigueur for boys, were quickly updated. Most of us boys, by this stage of the war, had these books in our pockets and could identify almost any plane, German or British, on sight. These books were originally published, as an aid for official spotters. Spotters manned posts, predominantly on the coast, and reported any aircraft they saw. These spotters fell out of use, gradually, but were invaluable during the Battle of Britain, as backup to, and confirmation of, the radar sightings. It goes without saying, cloudy weather seriously hampered visual sighting. The recognition books must have been relatively easy to produce. They gave only bare details in a typescript and were illustrated solely by black and white silhouettes. Three silhouettes were given for each aircraft a front view, a side view, and a view of the aircraft as it would appear directly overhead. School children, particularly boys, must have ensured a ready market for these books, particularly when the spotters grew fewer in numbers. This ready market must have helped relieve the relatively low cost of production. In fact, it probably enabled a large profit to be made. It is likely the books were first produced, at government expense, for issue, free, to the spotters Dash and others requiring them. If this is so, the schoolboy market must have been welcome, although, I doubt the taxpayers noticed, any reduction in their taxes. I remember my first aircraft recognition book, clearly. It was purchased for me, by my gran. Gran, I recall, bought the book in a small bookshop in Dorking. I remember the incident, distinctly, because of what had happened just previously. We had visited, the house in which Gran had been born and raised. Many generations of her ancestors had, likewise, been born and raised there. The house, built sometime in the 16th century, stood close to the site of the historic Toll Booth at South Holmwood, a few miles south of Dorking. A small brook meandered, through the property. Because of this small stream, the place had been known for centuries as Brook House a photograph of it took pride of place, in Grand's front room at Dewhurst Road. This photograph had intrigued me for ages and, to actually visit the place, it was a huge event in my young life. The visit, in all likelihood, took place during the Easter school holiday in 1941. The house later became a small hotel, but was destroyed by fire, I think, in the 1950s. Like the later, but similar, ABCs made popular by Ian Allen, the aircraft recognition books were always being updated dash which meant we were tempted to buy each latest edition. This became a real problem when the Americans entered the war. Then, the influx of new, or updated, aircraft became a steady stream, particularly after 1942. Reverting to the subject of RAF bombers, only the legendary Avro Lancaster bomber would, later, prove to be capable of surpassing the efficiency of the Halifax until the Lancaster was ready, however, the short Stirling and the Avro Halifax carried the load. Unlike Nazi Germany, Britain had concentrated, mainly, on four-engine bomber aircraft, since the earliest war years. The pre-war two-engine Wellingtons, built by Vickers, were successful and, to a lesser extent, so were the 2 engine Armstrong Whitworth Whitleys, but the two-engine Handley Page Hamptons proved inefficient. The Avro Manchester, sadly also with only two engines, was built more in hope, rather than with any real confidence, of success. Its passing, wasn't mourned. The Manchester, however, led directly to the larger four-engine Lancaster. This point alone, in view of the hugely successful exploits of the Lancaster, made the Manchester an important, if not a successful, aircraft. The weight of bombs, able to be carried by the four-engine British machines, proved highly advantageous in later air raids over German towns and cities. Often, the BBC would announce the weight of bombs dropped in a particular raid while these figures might have been exaggerated, the reports helped morale enormously. We knew and had experienced the effect of the Germans five hundred pounds to one thousand pounds bombs. When we heard that the RAF had dropped bombs of five thousand pounds, ten thousand pounds, and even twenty thousand pounds late in the war, we could judge properly the impact they had made. Whereas the German planes carried something like five thousand pounds to ten thousand pounds? the RAF bombers progressed, from the earliest Wellingtons, which carried around 5,000 pounds, up to the last Lancaster, which was able to carry a 22,000 pounds bomb. In a classic attack, the Bielefeld Viaduct was destroyed by one of these 22,000 pounders, in 1945. Information, of this type, was meat and potatoes to most schoolboys during the war and the tatty books, which we kept in our pockets, contained most of it. Other information we picked up, from various news releases. Later, We found out that some of the information we bandied about was exaggerated, to confuse the enemy, but we still lapped it all up. Suddenly, in the spring of 1941, we heard news of the German advance in North Africa. At the beginning, we were hoping the reverse was temporary. Events, however, were to prove this hope unreasonable. The German advance, spearheaded by Rommel's Africa Corps, pushed back the British and Commonwealth troops farther and farther. A stout hearted defense of Tobruk took place. Daily reports of the courage, displayed by the besieged garrison, made us all proud. Hopes of relieving the garrison, however, faded. I can remember the feeling of disbelief we all felt, as the relentless advance continued. Meanwhile, the campaign in East Africa continued successfully. Commonwealth troops were continually defeating the Italians, and advancing through difficult terrain, but there seemed no end in sight. To many people at home, there seemed little importance, to the various battles in this theatre of war. This isn't to say that, in the absence of good news elsewhere, we didn't use East Africa to bolster our flagging spirits. East Africa and the continuing RAF bombing of Germany, were the main things keeping us cheerful, late in the spring and early summer of 1941. Things were to get, even worse. First, there was the evacuation of our troops from Greece and the loss of Crete. Then, to add to our misery at home, came the news of the loss of naval vessels. These ships, destroyers chiefly, had been helping in, both, the defence and the evacuation of our troops in Crete. Crete became, yet another heroic catastrophe. Although great gallantry and much personal sacrifice took place, nothing could disguise the fact that the loss of Crete was a disaster. In May 1941, one of the most bizarre events of the whole war took place. The BBC reported that Rudolf Hess had landed, by parachute, in Scotland. Hess was the deputy leader of the Nazi party and third in line, after Hitler and Goering, to the German leadership all sorts of improbable reasons were suggested, while the government kept silent on any official reason. Early on we were informed, by German sources, that Hess was suffering from a mental illness. In addition, Germany, allegedly Hitler himself disowned him. As these two facts originated in Germany, they were discounted immediately. A story, much later, made some sense. It was stated, Hess had intended seeking out the Duke of Hamilton who, Hess thought, had access to the royal ear. Utter confusion reigned, about Hess, in the minds of the public. It was thought by some that he had been seeking peace. Others thought, he wanted to set up an underground group, to undermine the authority of the government. The communists suspected Hess of plotting to join Britain and Germany, in a conflict against the USSR. In the end, although many private theories existed, the matter just faded out of the news, and, eventually, out of most people's minds. Seeing Hess, at the, much, later Nuremberg war trials, he gave me the distinct impression of being, Merely a senile old man. Of all the stories arising from this escapade, the one claiming Hess wished to meet with the Duke of Argyle sounds the most plausible. We might never know for certain what caused Hess to parachute into the Scottish countryside. Absolutely nothing changed as a result of his night excursion. In the first months of 1941, the government began a practice of altering the ration of various commodities to reflect the supply situation. Cheese was reduced to one ounce per person per week. Later, it did return to 2 ounces and, during some periods, a special allowance of cheese was allowed to miners and agricultural workers. Butter rations were raised, briefly, to 4 ounces, but quickly reverted to the usual 2 ounces, per person, per week. The total fat ration, butter, margarine, cooking fat, was never above 8 ounces, per person, per week. The meat ration was reduced, to 1 slash d worth a week. This took into account the varied worth, of the many cuts. It wasn't much meat, whichever way you looked at it. Clothing was rationed, for the first time, and controls dictated what could be made and what style was allowed. Turn ups, for trousers, were forbidden and the number of pockets, per garment, stipulated. Double breasted coats and jackets were also forbidden. Furniture was, by this time, extremely scarce and a form of utility furniture started to be seen. It was quite plain, uninspiring, and rather shoddy. The sugar ration was increased, for a month, To encourage jam and deli making. This, it was hoped, would enable the most efficacious use of a seasonal glut of locally grown soft fruits. In the spring and early summer of 1941, eggs were in very short supply. Many people had to do without their ration of one egg for weeks on end. Besides stopping us from eating the eggs themselves, the egg shortage seriously affected the cooking of many recipes. Due to the severe rationing of fats, boiling eggs became the nation's favorite form of cooking them heavy bombing, of British towns and cities, was continuing throughout the spring-early summer period of 1941. I remember one particularly heavy raid on London. This must have taken place, on a weekend or during the Easter holidays, when I was home. I remember a few raids, but this one was particularly heavy. The reason I recall the incident so clearly is, because the Anderson Shelter was finally habitable, if, indeed, habitable is even vaguely the correct term. It had been re-concreted, when the water drained away, finally. Although we had used the shelter for some period of time, we were particularly pleased we had good shelter, due to the severity of the rate in question. The shelter had four, narrow bunks. These bunks were constructed, with wood measuring about four inches by two inches. Wire strapping was fixed, across the frame, to provide a spring. Spring, being a complete misnomer. It was as hard, as nails. The bunks were placed, in twos, with one above the other, Along the shelter's long sides. This enabled four people to lie down, I declined to use the word sleep. Of course, many more could use the shelter by sitting on the bunks. Until its eventual dismantling, the shelter never did lose its distinctive, pungent, malodorous stench. The smell, in the fetid shelter, was not unique. All the Anderson shelters appeared to have the same, basic, odor. Even when the thing was newly installed, it was unpleasant. The shelter reeked of must, dampness, earth and stale air, but underlying this was the smell of the galvanized steel and concrete. Personal odors were added, of course, as soon as the shelter was used. Despite all this, when things got bad outside some nights, there was nowhere better to be. Most certainly, it was preferable to sheltering in the stairwell in the hallway of the house. It was even possible to imagine oneself safe, while in the shelter. Such a feeling was impossible, I found, in the house. Gran always had a thermos of tea and some sandwiches, ready to take to the shelter. Blankets, pillows and a couple of lee Lowe's, inflatable mattresses, were taken by anyone else using the place. Torches, matches, candles and a large container of water, for emergency use only, were always kept there. In case anyone has the very natural curiosity to wonder, we chose to make a mad dash indoors, to a very adjacent lavatory, when nature called. These dashes were made during any lulls in the action. These lulls invariably occurred, but, during some raids, the Germans seemed oblivious to the personal needs of those they were intent on destroying. It can't be overstated, however, that natural functions do tend to dry up or, at least, become controllable in times of severe stress. The East African campaign ended with victory in May 1941. Local troops, free French forces, and local people had all helped the Commonwealth troops to overthrow the Italians, and Emperor Haile Selassie once again ruled in Ethiopia. A few, isolated, groups were not rounded up until November, but the fighting was over. It had been a confusing campaign, to those of us at home, mainly due to the fact that, in Britain, the area must have been one of the least known about. The clearing of hostile forces from the area, however, did open up an alternate route to the Suez Canal. Whether the war was fully understood, or not, the defeat of the Italians allowed us to savor success, for once. This was a rare thing, for the times. The battle in North Africa was continuing. Tobruk was still resisting Rommel's troops, but the hard-fought for British gains, earlier in the year, had all been lost in a couple of weeks. Rommel had advanced into Egypt. The various maps and diagrams, printed in the newspapers, clearly showed us the extent of this calamity. As though this wasn't bad enough, we learned of the capture of three British generals. It transpired enemy patrols, by accident or design, had taken these generals captive. Two, together, at one location and the other one, elsewhere ignoring the military implications, at home we thought it made us all look pretty stupid. The possibility of a chaotic military retreat, being at the root of the capture of these three men, wasn't overlooked, either. It was a propaganda nightmare of immense proportions. Understandably, with all the other bad news from North Africa, the British public was deeply disturbed. While the various spokesmen tried to make the best of the situation, Churchill spoke in the House of Commons of the losses, together with other setbacks, quite straightforwardly. Most of the public, although distressed, appreciated the honesty. The battle, for control of the Suez Canal, continued for many months and I remember that, briefly, each side would appear dominant. In between these periods of intense activity, advances, and retreats, we heard of skirmishes, of forward patrols contacting the enemy and of our troops contacting enemy recognizance units dash almost on a daily basis. Except that the matter was serious, deadly serious, the comings and goings across North Africa would have been funny. I mean no disrespect, when I say that the situation could, so easily, have been made into a Laurel and Hardy, or a Mack Senate comedy. Tobruk held out gallantly until, with much celebration, we heard it had been relieved. Throughout the siege, destroyers and other ships from the Royal Navy made nightly visits to help resupply the besieged garrison, largely manned by Australian troops. Siege was a word that was questioned by some, at the time, and later on. This pedantry arose because, by the time Tobruk was relieved, the garrison of about 30,000 men was, largely, replaced by fresh troops. Additionally, over 34,000 tons of supplies were shipped in by the Navy. Some people thought, that siege was not the correct word. Previously besieged, or not, Tobruk was retaken by the advancing British Army. We, at home, were elated. This time, we thought the advance must continue. Again, we were to suffer depressing disillusionment and disappointment. In May, Liverpool suffered particularly damaging and intense air raids. London, of course, was also attacked a few times. Although the attack, on the night of May 10th, was the heaviest for some time, it turned out to be the last truly serious raid on the capital, for a couple of years. It was during this raid that the Houses of Parliament were quite severely damaged. More than a few raids took place after this, but they are not concentrated, as so many had been previously. I heard many London people, depreciatingly, refer to these raids as hit and run raids. In truth, many other places would have thought them severe. It was in May, also, we heard the news about the loss of Crete. I have mentioned that many men and naval ships had been lost in the evacuation. At this period, around the middle of 1941, things were not going too well for us. It was very hard to feel optimistic. Our morale was to be lifted, but only after a terrible setback. Shortly after the distressing news about the loss of Crete, everyone was thoroughly engrossed in another naval epic it was of particular interest, to me. Today, most people know something about the circumstances as films and documentaries, along with many books, have been produced about the matter. At the time, it was much more gripping. The atmosphere became very tense, in Britain, as the matter unfolded. Like so many incidents throughout the war, ill fortune-slash-good fortune, bad luck-slash-luck, tragedy-slash-success, even victory and defeat, ebbed and flowed, between the combatants, throughout the Bismarck incident. The matter started, late in May 1941, when we heard the tragic news of the loss of HMS Hood. We are all, truly, aghast. Stunned and stupefied might, even more accurately, describe the public's feeling. HMS Hood was a battleship which was well-known and highly regarded. Most people, in the seafaring United Kingdom, had heard of her. Not only her loss, but the manner of her loss, was difficult for us to fully comprehend. We learned, that the mighty ship had gone down quickly and that there was huge loss of life. Only three survivors, from a complement of 1,416. The German battleship, Bismarck, was reported to be responsible for this calamitous event. Bismarck was acknowledged to be, the most powerful ship afloat at the time. The fact that she had eluded, albeit in atrocious weather, elements of the British fleet to escape into the Atlantic Ocean, was in a smack in the eye against Britain. It was a short-lived moment of joy, when Bismarck, along with her escort the heavy cruiser Prince Eugene, was sighted by the cruiser Norfolk and brought to battle in the Denmark Strait. For her to sink, so quickly, one of our finest ships, was a monstrous insult. Before long, we were told that a huge operation was underway, to destroy the German ship. No easy task. The Admiralty, together with the public, was bent on revenge. In this, the media supported the public's hunger. Non-stop reports, kept everyone informed of all that was going on. Reports, Maps, diagrams, all deluged us. The mighty firepower of the Bismarck, all her main details, her probable position and likely course, were all discussed on the radio and in the newspapers. Most of these details were well known to us schoolboys, already. Comparative details of naval vessels, aircraft, tanks, and the like were frequent topics of our discussions and conversations. Remember, we didn't have football players or teams, or cricket players and teams to discuss, criticize, or praise. Many conventional and pre-war schoolboys topics were not available, for us to talk about. With no sports to follow, no shows to watch and virtually no cinema, save the 2D rushes on Saturdays, our topics were almost entirely confined to the war. No one should suppose, these discussions and arguments were always erudite, but, neither should it be supposed they were not. Seeking a ship, on the oceans of the world, is extremely difficult. It is, truly, akin to searching for a needle in the proverbial haystack. Admiral Tovey, the officer in charge of the hunt, was reported to have reason to suppose the Bismarck was heading for harbour. This reason, it turned out, was that traces of fuel oil on the sea suggested that the Bismarck has suffered some slight damage. This could have occurred, in the battle with the HMS Prince of Wales and HMS Hood. The Prince of Wales was new and not, fully, operational at the time, next, we heard that aircraft, from HMS Victorious, had found and attacked the Bismarck. We were expecting good news to follow from this. Instead, we heard that they lost her, in foul weather, after slightly damaging her with torpedoes. The German Admiral, then committed a fatal error, which we were not told about at home until later. He broke radio silence and allowed Bismarck to be tracked down, by radio-slash-detection equipment carried in the British fleet. This foolhardy act, obviously thought necessary, didn't in fact decide the fate of the ship, or the fate of over 2,000 German seamen, as, in truth, it should have done. Later information revealed, that Bismarck was unlucky. The plotting of the radio signal was erroneously performed. However, a chance sighting, of the ship, by the crew of a coastal command aircraft, put Admiral Tovey Wise to Bismarck's actual position. Most of the population in Britain was, by this time, following the unfolding events. We heard that Bismarck had been attacked again. This time, by planes from HMS Ark Royal. Only days earlier, We had heard that Ark Royal had been involved in a convoy fighting its way through to Malta. She had successfully flown about 50 hurricanes into beleaguered Malta, although virtually unscathed by the Ark Royal's aircraft, Bismarck nevertheless suffered from one unlucky slash lucky torpedo strike. This, catastrophically, affected her rudder controls and doomed the mighty ship to steam in a wide circle. This was, of course, to prove fatal. It wasn't long before the news was received of the Bismarck's destruction. Bismarck fought bravely, against great odds. Although she could outgun and outrun anything else afloat, she couldn't overcome the circumstances that conspired to see her defeated. Hood had been avenged. How the country celebrated. Since that happy day, a day of great and joyous celebrations, I have pondered over something. I have always wondered how the relatives and friends of those killed aboard must have felt, while the rest of the country cheered and congratulated the men of the avenging force. For these relatives and friends, it must have been a very difficult time.